Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Like we're doing this work backwards. We're thinking a lot about inclusion at our meetings, at our boardroom tables. But inclusion starts at our kitchen tables. It starts in our homes. It starts in our communities. You want people to change their behavior at work. But you expect people to shatter stereotypes. You expect people to be authentic and empathetic. And yet the reality is two-thirds of white Americans are still self-segregating. And the numbers are very similar for Black Americans. So if you aren't building cross-cultural relationships, if you aren't actively thinking about how you can learn about a lived experience that is not your own, how do you expect to show up at work differently and show up as somebody who wants to be a more inclusive leader? I'm Mita Malik, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we have a returning guest, Mita Mallet, who you might remember from, gosh, Sharon, I think season one. Mm -hmm. so, yep. This is actually a conversation from earlier in the summer, but it was an important one. We wanted to re-air just in case you missed it. And of course, because Mita's our pal and her book comes out on October 3rd, nothing sends a signal of support like a pre-order sale. No joke. Having read an advanced copy of Reimagine Inclusion, as you'll hear in this episode, this is a really important topic that no matter where you and your company are on your equity and inclusion journey, you've got to check it out. We've all got some work to do. And hey, if you purchase it for work, you might even be able to expense it. Mita Malik is a corporate change maker with a track record of transforming businesses. She's an outspoken share of innovative and often thought-provoking ideas in the area of inclusion and equity. And she shares a voice that serves communities with, with a real purpose. Mita's actually the current head of inclusion, equity, and impact at Carta, and she's a top LinkedIn voice of 2020. She co-hosts the podcast Brown Table Talk with DC Marshall, where her and Dee every week break down the challenges women of color face in the workplace. But the reason we wanted to reconnect with Mita after so long was she's the author of a new book coming out in October called Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, which again, you can pre-order wherever you get your favorite books. And Sharon and I got, had the opportunity to read an advanced copy of the book and really kind of feel uncomfortable and have our <laughs> thoughts provoked in kind of this really important area that you would think we're experts on, but we just kind of talk to people. So uh, Sharon, what do you think about reconnecting with our old friend Mita? Well, I loved reconnecting with Mita. She was on our list of people to talk to when we had our 200th episode. And I think learning about what she's been doing since then has been really inspiring. But the 13 myths definitely made me pause as well. And it made me think about myths that I had heard or I have heard in the workplace, as well as myths that I continue to perpetuate. You know, like I, I too am guilty of some of the things that she had pointed out and I liked how she positioned them. She, she kind of, she was kind of a, I guess a little saucy about it. Like she definitely has a perspective about <laughs> these things, but she didn't hold back. Like she was just kind of like, you know, these are the 13 things that we all tell ourselves and we've got to do something about these things so that we create more inclusive workplaces. Yeah. And she really flips the script on us as we're asking these questions. Well, would you ask that to someone else? Would you think that? And so much of the core of, I don't want to say the solution, but some of it is just kind of change the exposure in your life. It's not just who you work with, but it's who you're with in your community. I cannot encourage you enough to, at minimum, hear this conversation, but go look at the book online, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Minutes to Transform Your Workplace, where you can pre-order it wherever you get your favorite book. But it's 
These are important conversations to be had. It's great to listen to a podcast like this and to hear conversations with diverse people and feel like you're doing enough. But the reality is, I think, Sharon, as you're saying, that we all perpetuate these myths in our own head or we allow them to exist in the world. And it's on all of us uh, to kind of make this change. And Mead is just a delight and really fun to talk to. So we hope you enjoy our chat with our old friend, Mead. Mita, welcome back to Modern Minorities. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm really excited. Mita, you were one of our first and early favorite guests. I think when we stopped talking to people we knew and started talking to people. Oh, do you say that about everybody? They're your favorite guest. No, 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 no. When I, here's what I mean. I said first and favorite. You were in that early crew. First and favorite. Yes, yes. You were in that early crew. But no, no, this is what was so cool about it. You were someone that we didn't know that early people that knew of us and knew what we were trying to do were like, oh, if you're doing that, you need to talk to me. And so much of our conversation kind of stuck with us over the years. And so it's just really exciting when you reached out and we've been kind of watching what you've been doing. You've been very, very busy. Uh, so it's just super exciting to talk to you and talk about the project that you've been working on. And normally the first thing we usually ask our guests is a question you've probably never heard, Mita, which is where are you from? But we already know the answer to that. And the answer is New Jersey. So I think the real question for us now is what's been going on since we last spoke to you? So the most important thing I'm continuing to do is trying to raise kind and inclusive human beings. My daughter just turned eight. My son is 10. We left a city into the suburbs. And so probably a whole other conversation about adulting in the suburbs and trying to make friends, which hasn't gone well for me. And I'm still the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Carta, a job I really love. And I also have a book coming out, which has been my... Wait, wait, you have a podcast too. Since we last Oh, spoke, I do have a podcast. You I do the, have a podcast. We can't forget about that one. <laughs> I do have a podcast. Let me rewind. I decided to start it with my friend DC Marshall during the pandemic. It was really based on all these conversations we'd had for years about all the shit we've gone through as women of color in our workplaces. And so it's called Brown Table Talk. And we self-funded the first season and then LinkedIn came knocking the second season. So we're part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. And we really spill all the tea on all the things women of color face in their workplaces. And we ask allies to join us to think about how they can do better, be better, and help women of color win at work. Yeah. And you guys are like six seasons in now. Uh, and yes. Yes. It's funny. We met and then you know, kind of started following you on social. And honestly, a lot of your takes are fire. And then you launched a podcast. And with D, you bring all those fire takes to life and you expand on them. And I just really, really enjoyed seeing it. Oh, thank you so much. And you know, I never thought I would be a podcaster, but I just love storytelling and the art of storytelling. And so podcasting, as you both know, since you do it so well, it's it's just another vehicle to get stories out there. Yeah, it's also um, a hobby that gets out of control. Is ah. what I've <laughs> Definitely for Roman. He's, you know, got at any given time at least three podcasts and two other projects. And Oh, wow. That I only do on nights and weekends. Correct. Because I have a day job. Yes. And, you know, I'm a parent, right? So Absolutely. I hear you. So, Mita, I, I think the other thing that you have done that we've not done is you've taken a lot of that thinking. And I would argue there's so much like processing power and I call it therapy that happens with a podcast. You get to work through your ideas with other people and other voices. And you kind of synthesize that into this book. And I've been reading your book for the last two weeks. It comes out in a few weeks, and we'll put the pre-order link. It's called Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Reimagine Your Workplace. I've been thinking a lot about it. Like, I'm on my own journey. I know Sharon is too, but hmm. as not just as a manager and a leader and a mentor, but as a member of my leadership team, honestly, as a parent <laughs> involved <laughs> in my community, your book really got me thinking. And I want to get into the 13 myths because it was such a cool construct. But I guess first, what what was your journey to say, I need to put this on paper? I need to write this book. Like, why? Well, I'll rewind a little bit. The journey starts from when I was young. My mother reminded me recently that I've been wanting to write a book since I could pick up a pen. I actually wrote four novels that have been unpublished to this day. So I've been wanting to write for a while. And after having not getting those novels published, I three of them didn't get published. And then I thought, what am I going to do? My agent dropped me. This is right after undergraduate. And then I went to get an MBA because I thought I need to pay bills. <laughs> and so I went to get 
a degree in a business and it it still fit what I really enjoyed doing, which was storytelling. And then after graduate school, I wrote that fourth novel and I couldn't get anyone to represent me. And then I just buried the dream of writing for a while. And, you know, my friend Lan Fan, who I know you, yep. we both know, says, you know, when you bury a dream, it's a seed that just starts to sprout on its own. And so then I found my way back to writing. Mm-hmm. And part of it was during the pandemic, but I wrote this book. I think I actually was working on it when I was last on your podcast. I just was afraid to tell people because I'd been rejected so many times. And I wrote the book because there's a lot of great books about diversity, equity, inclusion in the marketplace, a lot of great books on leadership, but I wanted to say the quiet parts out loud. I wanted to say all of the things I had heard in my career, the stories, the myths, the things we hold onto that we believe to be true, that actually prevents us from making meaningful progress in our organizations. How did you... Well, before I get into this book, I'm actually really curious. You said you had written three novels before. Yes. And you had an agent, which is amazing. But in undergrad, right? Right after I graduated from undergrad, a friend of mine who was starting her career in entertainment, and wow, has she done well. She's like just a rock star now. She had a friend who got me an agent. Got it. And so I wrote one book. They were all about being bicultural, being between two worlds of being, you know, of Indian descent and then being born and raised in the US. And I would get feedback on the first novel and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to change it. So let me write a second. Wrote a second. <laughs> and I got more feedback because I was right. young and stubborn. Oh, I'm not going to change it. Then I got a third. I wrote a third. And then my agent one day just dropped me over email. It was really mean. Oh. And if I said the name and I won't, because she's pretty big and popular. I have a current agent right now. My current agent doesn't know that I wrote three novels. Really? That's how like, he, I only hear this podcast. He doesn't know. He has no yeah. idea that I've written three novels and that I had another agent because I was like, what if they find out they don't sign me? It's just the self-doubt. You know, I still right. have a lot yeah. of self-doubt. We all do. But I was like, what if somebody finds out that I was rejected all these times? And they, Well, those, are, those were just practice rounds. Oh, those I love practice that. Rounds, practice rounds, right? Practice rounds. I love that. Yep, exactly. So fast forward, and then you had a fourth, and then now you... So this... <laughs> Your fifth. This is technically your fifth book. Technically my fifth book. But you know what else, which is this is how obsessed I've been with storytelling my whole life. I moved and I found recently, would you believe, another proposal for a nonfiction book that I completely Whoa. forgot about. I was like, oh my God. Uh, wow. I've always really wanted to be a writer. Always really yeah. wanted so to be So this is your fifth debut. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what does mom think about all this? Mom's uh, really proud. I wish my dad was still here. We lost him in 2017. Uh, mm. He would have been really, uh, he was a, just loved writing and reading. So yeah, I mean, she's pretty overwhelmed by it. That's so great. Yeah. I want to ask another question because like Sharon and I, you're a parent and uh, you know, that's the biggest, hardest job. When would you let your kids read this book or other books? Because I think about the podcast and my daughter knows I do this. My son doesn't mm. fully understand. He just tries to break the mic because he's two. But I sometimes wonder, I was like, when is she going to discover this? Is she? Am I going to let her listen to this? But when it comes to your books and your writing, they obviously know what mom does. But yeah, when do you think it's the right time? Because I think they not, do. Yeah. They're, they're, they're wholly unimpressed, right? There's nothing like kids to ground you. I had this moment. My mom's like, when are you going to tell the kids you wrote a book? Like, it's coming out. You should tell them. And I'm like, okay. So it's like Sunday morning and I say to my husband, okay, go get the video camera because I'm going to tell them now. So I like pick up my phone and I'm like, oh, let's put mom's name into Amazon. Oh my God, a book comes up. And my son's like, yeah, okay. (laughs) And then my daughter's like, can I get more Fruit Loops? Like they're just totally unfazed. Like they were just like, and I was like, this is the moment they're going to find out I'm an author. And they just, yeah. And it's great because that's what's really important. Like I always say, stay humble, hustle hard, right? So that the humble piece is important to me. I, I think you should put your daughter's quote on the back of the book. Does this come with fruit I loops? I should <laughs> loops. She was like, what? You know, I've, during the course of editing it, they've seen me edit it. My son probably will look at it, but they're still, I don't know, maybe high school. It's a really great question. I haven't gotten there yet. Really great question. What do they think about you as a podcaster? Do, have they met Dee? Do they see Dee on screen? No, they've, they see her picture and they'll be like, oh, look, oh, it's, it's, um, you know, we say auntie D or D auntie just out of respect, but uh-huh. they don't really understand. I don't think they have any, I'm just mom. Right. So they don't have right. any understanding that there's a podcast or what else I do. 
that you're a fully formed human being outside of yes. being their mother. Right. Yeah. Yes. Other than getting them Fruit Loops, right? And goldfish right. and string cheese. <laughs> All right. So I really want to jump in to the book, but I guess if there's only one thing, if you walked into my CEO's office or, you know, my CFO's office and we're like, hey, I'm Mita and I, I wrote this book and I do all these things. Like, why do they need to read this? Why do people need to be thinking Ooh. about this? Inclusion's a driver of the business. Mm. Fundamentally, I believe that. I've always believed that as a marketer. Also, inclusion is the number one retention tool we have right now at our disposal, right? I think the markets will continue to be in flux post-pandemic. Are we hybrid? Are we remote? Are we forcing everyone back to office? All these big questions. But imagine, I mean, I've been chasing inclusion all my life. I talk about that in the introduction to Reimagine Inclusion, as you both read. And all I've ever wanted, and I think what most people ever wanted or want or desire is to be value seen, recognized, and heard in their workplaces. And that's inclusion. And so why is that something we can't commit to doing for each other? Mm -hmm. How did you decide on these 13? Well, 13 is my lucky number. That's why I picked 13. There's more than 13. I had been keeping journals over the years. As you know, I, as I've said many times, I love to write. So I had career journals. I was writing down experiences and things that I had gone through. A lot of writing for me is healing. So when I write, I feel like I'm, I'm healing or processing things that have happened to me. And so that was pretty easy for me to go back and, and look through some of those things. Probably the things that I have heard the most said in my career, or I know others have experienced. And so those are the things I wanted to focus on. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the myths themselves, it's such a cool construct. Well, thank you. Because, yeah, no, absolutely. Because I really don't like reading, quote unquote, businessy nonfiction books. <laughs> I just want to read sci-fi or my graphic yeah, novels. Yeah. Or literally, I read a lot of nonfiction documentaries for the, the comic book podcast. But like, this one really kind of made me uncomfortable. Mm. Right. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, I know that I have a podcast on race. It was, oh, shit. I should think about this. I've heard some of the, these things or and I'll be honest. In my career, I sometimes thought some of these things. I think mm -hmm. we all have. And yes, you, you say that in the forward. And I think throughout it's like this should make you uncomfortable. Like we don't all have the answers. So I, I just want to jump in and literally read all 13 myths because Ooh, okay. they're not generic. They're not generic <laughs> business chapter titles. Yes. They're like, yeah, these oh, are very oh. specific, very, very yeah. specific myths. Sharon's being right, polite. So, They're very specific. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very pointed. Yes, very pointed. Okay. So again, the book title is Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. And every chapter is kind of titled and headlined by these myths, which I want to read. Myth number one, why are you asking if I have any black friends? Myth number two, I always allow everyone to speak in meetings. Of course, I'm an inclusive leader. Myth number three, it's time to have some courageous conversations on race. Let's ask our employees of color to lead them. Myth number four, I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Myth number five, we protect the a-holes because our business wouldn't run without them. Myth number six, why are you asking for a raise? You and your husband make more than enough money. Myth number seven, we need more people of color in leadership. Let's launch a mentorship program. Myth number eight, of course we support women. We just extended maternity leave. Myth number nine, these DEI efforts don't benefit me. My voice as a white man doesn't count. Myth number 10, no one can question our support of the LGBTQ plus community. Look at how much money we invest in June Pride Month. We aren't diversity washers. Myth number 11, our ad wasn't racist. It was simply a mistake. Myth number 12, we aren't apologizing. People need to stop being so sensitive. And myth number 13, we can work from home now. The future of work is inclusive. Mita, first, those are fire, and I kind of wish I had you reading those myths. Well, actually, I was just going to ask if you're available for hire for the audio version, because that was pretty good. That was pretty good. I, it's like the, the tenor and the tone as I was reading these, like I did a double take reading some of them. So kudos. Like it just like well, thank you. summed up. This was like such a perfect summary of the Mita I've observed and got <laughs> to know since we first met. Because you're kind of like speaking truth to power. How did you come up with these? Is it just like synthesizing the journals? It was synthesizing the journals, but also I wanted to reach people in a provocative way. Like I wanted people to want to read the book and want to read the chapters and the myths, because if they do, they will, just as you and Sharon did, I hope, 
show up differently to work tomorrow. I mean, that's really my hope is that people will take a few things away. Imagine if everybody showed up to work differently tomorrow, one or two things they would change, but it is my tone of voice in social media. It is the way I write. And so I really wanted to be provocative because there are so many books out there on leadership, diversity, equity, inclusion. So I was thinking about how can I reach people in a different way? Hmm. Did you believe any of these myths at any point? Oh, I'm sure I did. Absolutely. Which one would you say was one that stood out the strongest or took you the longest time to to kind of get over? That's a really great question. I think this this entire idea of you know, we need more people of color in leadership. Let's launch a mentorship program. Yeah. I now boldly and apologetically and loudly say I have been over-mentored and under-sponsored in my career. Yeah. I never really realized the importance of that until, I don't want to say it's ever too late, but when I was a marketer and associate brand manager, no one ever sat me down to say, here are the experiences you need to have to get to vice president here. Right. I never had, I did later on in my career, but definitely early on, I didn't have career sponsors. And later on, I really sought those individuals out to create those relationships. But that's the one where I sort of fell into the corporate trap of, yeah, we'll just do a mentorship program. I don't know how many mentorship programs I was in. And I get a lot of flack for that. When I say I've been over-mentored and under-sponsored, I wouldn't be here on this podcast with both of you if I didn't have a lot of amazing mentors being sponsored for your career and your organization, I believe is completely different than mentorship. Yeah. Go into that a little bit more though, because I think that is, I encounter that a lot. I I end up mentoring a lot of younger women that are <laughs> usually Asian because, you know, they kind of gravitate towards me as a mentor and a leader. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I do try to impart upon them. And it's, it's tricky, especially in your earlier career and professional years to know the difference. So talk about that a little bit more because there, I, I'm with you. There's a, there's a clear difference between a mentor and a sponsor at your company. I am blessed and surrounded by so many mentors. You all, we could be mentors for each other. <laughs> oh, I know we've reached yeah. out over the years on podcasting, on other things, on other guests you're looking for, right? Mentors from old bosses, people who used to work for me, work with me, people in my place of worship, in my community, mentors everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Family Mm -hmm. friends who are mentors, family members who are mentors. But here's the thing, Sharon, if we're mentors for each other, you can't be my career sponsor. You don't work in my organization. Right. It doesn't work that way. And so when I think about sponsorship, it's really somebody who's typically two levels above you in your organization. They have pretty big P&L, big team. They have social and political capital that they're willing to expend for you. And they are in the room, as I say, in Reimagine Inclusion, something I never really thought about until a career sponsor said this to me. Do you know who's talking about you when the doors are closed and who's fighting for your career? I'm like, doors are closed and people are talking about me? Like, I was so naive about how these things work to corporate America. Yeah. And so that's really important. Or they're not talking about you. Or they're not. you don't have sponsorship. Exactly. Like, you don't even make it to that list. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And a sponsor, what are they going to do? They're going to open doors that you thought were closed to access to individuals in leadership in the C-suite. They're going to get your name on the slate for a job you didn't even know existed, wasn't even posted. They're going to get you on a special task force, which is going to give you high visibility to, let's say, the CMO or the CEO. And so that is really the difference. It is the difference on how you can advance and grow your career. Something that made me do a real double take when I was reading it was, I mean, I do think there's a value for sponsorship and mentorship. Mm -hmm. Understanding that they are two different things that maybe have some overlap. Mm -hmm. Do you have a pattern of mentoring individuals who look like you and act like you and think like you? And it really, it made me uncomfortable. I've always known I've had this blind spot. There's a lot of young men. They're not all Indian, right? They're not all comic book fans, (laughs) but they do like the same writers that I do, be it listen to the same podcast, you subscribe to the same newsletters. And some of that is cross-pollination with each other. But that's not good for me. And that's not good for whoever I could be sharing and helping. I, I think that that does trickle down into sponsorship. Now I have a diverse org, mm-hmm. which, you know, I can't break that habit with. But it just it's like, who are you gravitating to? It even comes back to like the first chapter where are there people from different communities, be it black, underrepresented, etc., in your community? Mm -hmm. Are you making the effort to go into those communities? And that was just, for me, that was a theme that 
we all think we're the hero of our own story yes. and we're further along than we should be. And you just really have to re-examine it. Like, are you kind of coming into your comfort zone? Because there's not a lot of time. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I've observed over the years as well is that I feel like we're doing this work backwards. We're thinking a lot about inclusion at our conference room tables and meetings at our boardroom tables and inclusion starts at our kitchen tables. It starts in our homes. It starts in our communities. And that's exactly what you were just talking about as I start the book to thinking about, okay, you want people to change their behavior at work. You put them through a four-hour unconscious bias training. I hope nobody listening has had to go through that or is hosting one of those. But you expect people to shatter stereotypes. You expect people to be authentic and empathetic. And yet the reality is the research I included in Reimagined Inclusion talks about, you know, two-thirds of white Americans are still self-segregating. And the numbers are very similar for Black Americans. So if you aren't building cross-cultural relationships, if you aren't actively thinking about how you can learn about a lived experience that is not your own, how do you expect to show up at work differently and show up as somebody who wants to be a more inclusive leader? I, I don't understand how you can do that. I think about that a lot with my own kids, too. Mm, you know, yeah. we all have bad habits. I, I know my bad habits are more pronounced now that I'm an adult and I'm watching <laughs> uh, me try to prevent them from playing out with my daughter or my son, right? Because it's like, it's more they're watching what we're doing, not what we're saying. Sure. But those habits start, I really think, from a young age, that observation of, I mean, you also talk about the myth somewhere about like, oh, I'm colorblind. No, don't be colorblind. Be cognizant that there is a difference between me and you Absolutely. and understand that and try to dig into that a little bit more. And the, the beautiful thing about kids is they don't have a filter. So they kind of don't put those polite blinders around. It's interesting that you mentioned that. And recently having a conversation with my daughter, she's adjusting to a new school. And she said, oh, so-and-so said that person's weird. That person's weird. And I was like, well, tell me more. Like, why would we call that person weird? And I think that's when othering starts. We have to be really careful when we say, Mita's strange, weird, odd, funny, yeah, awkward. Yeah. Because that becomes the gateway to stereotyping and that eventually leads to hate. And so while we may say these things innocently, we have to watch for that language, right? Just like you said, our, the little people in our lives are watching us, whether we realize it or not. It is interesting. I was, um, I was hanging out with a bunch of nine-year-olds yesterday. They're not my friends. They were my kids' friends. Diversity <laughs> <laughs> can range like, you know, age range. It can range. Sure. It can. Yeah. It can. But they were having conversation, Mita, and they were saying things about another boy in their class that weren't, it wasn't overtly mean, but it was that same sense of othering. Like they were, hmm. it was almost, it was this interesting. I was just listening and trying to understand what was motivating them. It was almost like they were fascinated by him hmm. because he was he was different from them for whatever that means. But in doing that, they were trying to bond with each other. And it was like, it was really interesting because I've seen it in my own experience with like from a male, female perspective, like girls, middle school girls, you know, being in that, being then that myself, I was like, wow, I recognize that type of way of bonding. But it just made me so uncomfortable to kind of hear it as an adult and I had to stop it immediately, right? I was kind of like, okay, you guys, like this person isn't here. Mm -hmm. And so because they're not here with you right now, we shouldn't be talking about them, good or bad, you know, because it just becomes gossip. And I kind of went in that direction. But I think now that you've articulated it, it is because on some level, I felt like that could then escalate to just, it's, it's a non-inclusive behavior, right? And it can escalate to that point. So you're absolutely right. That's amazing that you stopped it that's what it takes, right? Sometimes it's easier just to just to think, and I've done that with my kids, oh, they're just kids, they're talking, rather than saying, okay, let me really intently listen, which is what you're doing, and, and you intervened, just to say, yeah. let's stop this conversation. Thank you. It didn't, I didn't feel like a hero at the time. I kind of felt like, you know, but I, I, was, I was just kind of like, I, there's something about this, and I couldn't put my finger on it, but it just, it started to feel like it was going into some territory that didn't feel appropriate. And as the only grown-up, in the room, I had to, I had to mm -hmm. do something. <laughs> one of the myths that, um, it was it's such an obvious one, but it just needed to be said was number three, that it's time to have some courageous conversations on race. Yeah. Let's ask our employees of color to lead them. And if some of my best friends are black, but like literally over the last three years, the conversation of exhaustion of like, 
quit asking me to speak at the front of the room, quit asking me yes. how I'm doing, et cetera. And something you said was courageous conversations can't be one-sided. It can't just sit on the marginalized community. Can you talk about that? And also one thing I loved in that was like how the term microaggression is like such a let people off the hook. Yeah, it is. It is. As, as my friend D, DC Marshall says on the Brown Table Talk podcast, we call a thing a thing and it's not microaggression, it's racist, right? I mean, when it's, yeah. we have to call things by their right name, as she reminds me. If you just pick your phone up today and you're looking on your feed, there's another tragedy. There's hurt and harm being caused to a community uh, right now as we speak. And so too often I've watched this scenario play out. Let's say it's another black unarmed American shot and killed by police and leaders mostly white, will scramble to say, okay, we have to get the Black Employee Resource Group together. We have to talk to them about how they're feeling. It could be anti-Asian hate crimes. Same thing. Anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-LGBTQ legislation and the hurt and harm that that community is experiencing. I could go on and on. But the question we ask ourselves is, or that I've been asking is, why do we continue to put pain on display? And why do we continue to put the burden on the individuals who are being harmed to tell us about their harm? And I think for many individuals, what we don't realize is you are asking, let's say your Black colleague to re-experience intergenerational trauma. And I'm a storyteller. I love a good story, but you have to say at what cost, why do you need to go to a primary source, right? to hear a story. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about Google. It's our best friend. You can Google things to learn more about others' experiences. You don't have to go to the primary source and actually re-traumatize them. And the other thing I will add is that these aren't invitations. Often they are requests. They're asks, like especially in corporations where there's politics and power dynamics. Oftentimes when employees are being asked to do this, it can be really difficult for them to say no, depending on who They're being asked. voluntold. Voluntold. Yes, voluntold. How many times has that happened to you? Um, you know, that's hard to answer because I feel like I have... Because you're in the role. Yeah, I've chosen a different sort of burden. Yes, I'm a woman of color. Yes, I still consider myself a marketer and I'm currently a chief diversity officer. I, I've chosen to take that burden on. And so I want that burden to be relieved from other people. Like I want to take that on. I've chosen. And that's why I think it's so important that companies have somebody leading diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts versus going to somebody who is from a historically marginalized community and asking the ERGs to be the DEI strategy, which they should not be. Well, something you talk about a lot is allyship. We have a mutual friend, um, Carl Preissner, known in my entire life, uh -huh. professional life. Yes. He's a personal friend at a major corporation. He's in the uh, equity and inclusion part of the org now. He's mm -hmm. pivoted his career just like you did. And Carl's a white guy, mm -hmm. you know? And at first you're like, huh, why is he in there? But it's like just as important yes. for him to be at that table, him to be driving that conversation, him driving the I say majority perspective. So th that was another one of your myths. Those DEI benefits don't benefit me. My voice as a white man doesn't hmm. count anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's a really hot take. Can you unpack yeah. that one a little more? I've done this work for a while now where I feel like white men feel that they're not included in the DEI agenda, that their voice doesn't matter. When they ask questions, they're shut down. I think there's there's two sides to the story. Yeah. One being that, at least in my role, I will say I show up with a lot of kindness and grace and try to educate, particularly, let's say, white men who come to me and ask questions. Now, here's the thing I'll say. If you make a mistake once, like we talk about the importance of apologies, that's important. But like if you continue to repeat the same mistake over and over again, I'm not saying that I'm going to let you off the hook. Mm. But I think there's that piece of a number of white men that I know have been career sponsors for me, mentors for me, good friends, feeling like they have been in their careers shamed, blamed, demonized, shut down when they're asking questions about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I do believe there are individuals like Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer who have caused significant hurt and harm, who had to seek redemption and leave their workplaces and workspaces. 
And I also believe that most people have really good intentions at work and the impact doesn't always land. And so thinking about how we can include white men in this work, you know, I think the business case for diversity is still very important. I know a lot of my colleagues would say, we already know what the business case is. Why do we have to keep repeating it? We have to keep repeating it so that we can bring people along who don't understand why this work is important. You asked me at the beginning, what's the one thing I would say to your CEO? Inclusion's a driver of the business. Nielsen is just one source that tells us in the US alone, there's over $3 trillion of spending power with the multicultural consumer. So ask yourselves how you're going to go after growth and authentically serve communities with products and services if you don't have that representation at the table. And if that representation at the table doesn't you know, it's a, it not, it's not a check the box. They actually have a voice and what they say matters and what they say actually helps drive the business forward. One of the myths that I really resonated with was number eight. And it's, of course, we support women. We just extended maternity leave. Oh, And you yes. tell a story about your own experience with working while pregnant and cutting down your travel in your third trimester, as well as staying into the office until 11 o'clock right before giving birth, which as someone who's had two babies, like mm. that is, that resonated so much stronger than I think, than it definitely would have if I hadn't had that experience. So mm -hmm. I think one thing I've learned about as, as a leader is women and men before they enter parenthood have preconceived notions of what it what it might be like, what it should be like. I mean, even even as women are pregnant, right? Like I've had many conversations with women who work with me leading up to them giving birth and being like, I'm, you know, I'm planning to come back full force. And I'm always like, just take your time. Just let, let's see how it goes. Give yourself the space to determine what's going to happen. Because you just, you never know. Motherhood, parenthood, having a new person enter your family in whatever way changes everything. And I think what was really interesting about your myth is so many companies feel like if they can check these boxes, right, give paid leave, have have a mother's room, even offer like flexible, yes. flexible work arrangements and on-site childcare that that that's enough. And I wanted to hear from you specifically, like what are the what are the more empathetic ways mm -hmm. that employers can be providing the support that a parent needs? And I think it's I think it's not just the person giving birth. Like I love the fact that you had said parental leave is important, mm -hmm. you know, giving, yes. giving the partner. Well, it sets, a, it sets a precedent and a responsibility. Right. In the, in the household. Exactly. Yeah. So like, what are, what are some of those things? Because it's, it's a, I don't think it's not about the policies, right? I think what you were really trying to communicate is it's about creating a culture where this is just as normal as someone taking a sick day. Like when we were all getting COVID, no one's calling you when you have COVID. No one expects you yes. to return an email. Sadly, that, that has changed now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> People are like, just work from home. It's That's fine. That's true. You're right. Now it's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> but like, what are kind of the, some of those key points and how can we, yeah. how can we think more thoughtfully about that? When I decided to become a mother, I think I always knew I wanted to be a mom. I always mm -hmm. knew I wanted to lead. I wanted to be a mom. All the things you want to do in life. Good mom, good wife, good sister, good daughter. All the things I want to say I did well at the end of my life. I never anticipated. I had no idea the cost, the price I would pay in my career for becoming a mother. I had no idea. Hmm. And the motherhood penalty and the fatherhood premium well-researched and well-documented, which I talk about in this myth. As our family grew, my husband was seen as more stable, more dependable, more committed, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. For every child a man has, statistics show he actually earns more. For women, it goes in the opposite direction. I'm seen as less committed, less stable, less dedicated to my career, more disorganized, more frazzled. And I think the biggest takeaway for me is, you know, I share the story in the book where I remember being up for a really big promotion. I had two young kids at the time and, you know, a lot of career sponsors in the company had come to me, a number of people and said, this is your role. You got to go apply for it. We're all backing you. And in, as in many organizations, you have to get your manager to sign off. And I'll never forget at the time my manager said to me, you're not going to do that job that requires so much travel. Your kids are young. No, that's not going to work for you. We'll find you another role. 
And I was stunned and he stopped. I could not apply for the job. And, and this was also an individual who had a lot of power in the organization. And I, you know, I, I, I'll rewind that scene from time to time in my head. And I wish I had the courage to ask him who gave you the permission, who gave you the permission to slow down my career. Yeah. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves is do we hold women and men to different standards who become parents? Yes, we do. We absolutely do. Because the questions you would ask about, can she travel for this role? Are her kids young enough? Are they old enough? Who's watching her kids? Is she raising her kids? Should she be doing part-time? Blah, 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 blah. All the questions. We don't ask that of men. Like it's very rare yeah. that I've heard in any conversation when someone finds out that he's a dad that there's questions about whether he's committed to his career. In fact, it's almost like, oh, there's like another gold star. He's a dad, right? He's a dad. So that's the bias that we have to really watch out and ask ourselves if we're thinking about this, about a woman, would we actually be thinking the same thing if this individual was a man? Well, and I'm not to sidestep it, but it's like, you have to question, should, why are we asking that question? Should you even be asking? My, my wife yes. catches me on this all the time. I'll just admit it freely. At home, in my own like safety zone of errors, my wife has called me out on that. Mm -hmm. She's like, that's not your decision mm -hmm. to make that assumption about her or him, right? Your job is to do the assessment later on mm -hmm. of, of the work itself. But it's not your decision to make the call and to kind of um, cut people short almost mm -hmm. before they've had the opportunity to show what they can or can't do. Absolutely. And I think we've all had those thoughts. I think particularly... We talk about, again, it's what happens in our homes and how we're raised. It's the media we consume. It's the books we read and the expectations we have about roles women are supposed to play in our society and what they're supposed to do when they become a mother versus what a, what a man's supposed to do when he becomes a father. And so um, that's amazing that you can have those conversations openly and that you can catch yourself because we all have bias. It's just a matter. I always say like the best part is no one can hear anything that's happening in my head, right? So I can unpack <laughs> that. I can think about it. And then I can just choose to do something different, right? Like that thought doesn't have to translate into an action. I hold the thought, I interrogate it. And then I think about how I'm going to act differently. But, but I think that's the important part, Mita, that a lot of us don't do. Uh, you mentioned this a couple of times in the book, like, shit is busy. We, you know, it's just, we kind of react to our own instincts. And I do think in, we need to be able to identify those key moments to pause mm -hmm. and stop and think about it versus just kind of going with our gut and reacting to it. Because that's where our, we all have worse behaviors or incorrect behaviors. That's where they come out sometimes. Absolutely. And you will spend more time undoing what you did, right? <laughs> Right. right. It's true. Right. Right. Yep. That quick decision. You know, one of the best, you know, when you think about unconscious bias and sometimes it's overt bias, right? One of the best analogies I ever heard is like, you know, back in the day when I had a long commute, it's like when you're on autopilot, right? Sometimes you just get home and you're like, how did I do that? I don't remember, but I've done this drive so many times. Just get in the car and do it. And so that's oftentimes at work, we're an autopilot for some of the really big decisions where we need to snap out of it and not be an autopilot. So we don't have a lot of time left, but I, one of the myths I really wanted to close on that as we think about why folks should read this is kind of something I've heard a lot. And every once in a while when I've heard it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's kind of right. And it, it, again, I'm past it now, but it is one that's worth saying. And it's myth number four. I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Mm. And mm. You, you were literally just talking about this in the last one. It's like, I love how you are making us, the reader, and everyone ask themselves, would you ask that same question of another group? And then I learned a new term, meritocracies. I really like that. <laughs> so, I mean, how do, you, how do you address that when a CEO says that, when a CFO, when a head of operations, a head of hiring, mm -hmm. a head of engineering says something like that? One of the things I try to do in that myth and I do throughout Reimagine Inclusion is get people to self-reflect and do the flip. Like, have we ever said, I'm all for non-diverse talent as long as they're good? Mm. Like, have we ever said that? You know, one of the stories I share is a leader that I was working with had said very proudly, we're doing everything we can to attract Black talent. We have an internship with historical Black college and university. It's not working out. It's not the right fit, culture fit. They don't have the right expertise. You know, all of the coded language you would hear. And I said to him, okay, so how many interns did you have in this program? And they didn't get offers. How many? Three. 
three. So we can't work with that school again. Mm. And so I'll pick on my alma mater, Duke, for a second, where I went for my MBA. If, if we had an internship program with Duke University and we had brought in three white interns and we didn't give them offers at the end of the internship program, would we never work with Duke University again? Wow. I, I would likely say we would work with them again, right? And so I also, you know, another example is if I am on your team and as a South Asian woman, I didn't work out for all the reasons wasn't the right role, expertise wasn't there, maybe I wasn't trained appropriately, we part ways. Are you more or less likely or ambivalent to hiring another South Asian woman? Have you started to create some sort of bias or pattern in your head? Now, if I was a white man, would it make you less reluctant to hire another white man? If the first white man you hired wasn't actually a fit for the role in terms of expertise or experience? So that's the exercise when I work with leaders, I ask them to do. Okay, so let's go to the flip. Would you consider that to be true? Because that's when we start to very clearly see we have different standards for different people. And part of that is, back to the beginning, is that if we don't have access to people from... Sample size. Your sample size is low, right? Exactly. Then that's what you keep going back to. This book made me uncomfortable in a lot of really good ways. It made me cringe at moments for myself or the people experiencing it, sometimes you at a kickball game. (laughs) But it's important. I'd really encourage everyone to like, check this out online, pre-order or get wherever you get your favorite books, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, and find yourself taking notes and highlighting it. Like, Because I think there's a shared experience. And I think something you said at the top, Mita, was like, if you can just take one or two things away to kind of even change your mode of thought or your mode of being in a room, because a lot of the listeners of this show, depending on you know your seat at the table, we're all at these tables, and um, mm-hmm. we need to be thinking about this a lot more. So, first, thank you for writing it, but we're not going to let you off the hook, Mita. Sharon, are we going to make her do a speed round again? Oh gosh, no, yeah. no, yeah. I think we need to. I think it's been a couple of years, so got to mm. get that going oh, gosh. again. Gosh, okay, I don't remember the speed round, but here we go. <laughs> here we go. That's the right answer. I'm ready. Okay, ready, here we go. What's one thing about you that no one expects? Oh, I wrestle with my kids. You wrestle with your kids? Yeah, now my son's a little, he's getting to my height. But yeah, I enjoy wrestling and, and dance at thons Yeah, dance at you Do you let them win or are you just always pinning them to the ground? Oh, uh, now it's a little harder. But the dance a I'm pretty good. I like to say yes. I win. But you'd have to ask my <laughs> nephew who thinks he won the last battle. But I disagree. So meet up. We're coming back to an old friend and an old guest. So I've been wanting to come up with some new questions for speed rounds. So I literally came up with one this morning. Uh-oh. Uh, I'm going to try it. You're the first time you're getting it. Uh-huh. What is a song or an artist that's been stuck in your head lately? Oh, this is a good one. My, I'm listening to what my kids listen to. So Taylor Swift, Antihero. And there's a line in the song. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. And wow. That's what I thought for most of my career, that I was the problem as I was chasing inclusion. So that song and that line in particular really, really has just kept being on repeat in my head. She's Swifty. All right. You're Swifty. One of the things that you told us in our previous chat was that you really wanted to talk to Gretchen Carlson. Yes. Um, if you could, like, if you could talk to anybody on a podcast, you had mentioned Gretchen Carlson since then, you've interviewed her twice, right? Yes. And so pretty amazing. That has now like the things that you say on this show apparently become reality. So become reality. So if if we were to ask you that again, if you were to choose anybody to chat with on a podcast from this day going forward, who would that be? All right, I'm gonna call it into existence. Shonda Rhimes. Oh yes. I just have been watching Queen Charlotte. I'm just fascinated by her storytelling capabilities and how she's reimagining Mm -hmm. the world for all of us. I don't think I ever saw myself or thought that I belonged in, I don't know, the Victorian regal era. And wow, like, you know, between Bridgerton and Queen Charlotte and she's done so much, but it's, it's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Have you watched her masterclass? I have not. I have her book as well. I, now that I've finished my book, I'm reading books again. Yeah. Yes. If you get a chance, her, she does a whole masterclass about 
storytelling basically. And, uh, awesome. She's, she's amazing. She's incredible. What's a, what's a guilty pleasure book or movie that you've been, uh, digging that's not Queen Charlotte? Oh gosh. All right. Here I go. Well, I was on Indian matchmaking. I finished that and Netflix, who loves me, (laughs) recommended Jewish matchmaking. So I'm on Jewish matchmaking now and texting a lot of my Jewish friends to understand, is this, is this right? The religious terms are talking about, is this accurate representation? You know, I have all these questions about it and that's what I'm making my way through now. You know, it's, it's back to one of the first myths. I I actually think that's really important in why these stories need to be told. I've said this a few times. It's, Miles Morales as Black Spider-Man does needs to exist. Half Black, half Latino Spider-Man needs to exist, not just for people to feel seen, but for other people to see him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's equally important. Like the fact that you are texting your Jewish friends and seeking to understand because you're doing, again, whether or not reality TV is right. accurate, but texting a friend and being like, it's accurate. And, and you kind of have a fun culture moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, last question. The answer may have changed since three years ago, but we're going to ask it to you again. We're going to check the tape. Oh, gosh. We are. We are. <laughs> what does being a modern minority mean to you? Oh, that's a great question. I am in the season of being loud, proud, and bold and unapologetic. That's that's the season I'm in right now. I love that. I don't remember exactly what you said last time, but I'm pretty sure that's different. Like it, it feels, feels it different. Feels it does feel different. Like, yeah, yeah, I'd have to yeah. go check the feels tape different. as well. But I think it feels different. Yes. But you know, Mita, you say you're now in that season. As long as we've known you, I think you are. You've always been in that season, and oh, I, that's, that's what I love about you. And oh, I, uh, you. I think Sharon and I hope that this book isn't the last. We know your voice is out there a lot more. It's getting louder every day, and people are starting to repeat and quote the things you say. And uh, oh. thank you for doing it. It it. You're saying the things that are in a lot of our heads and you're you're putting it to words in a, in a way that's catching on. So thank you so much. For well, thank here. you both for having me back as a second time guest. It means a lot. I really enjoy everything you do in your podcast. So thank you. And thank you. Time is a precious commodity. I really appreciate you being early readers for the book. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.